Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may have heard, I think we talked about it on the show the other day, that there is now a a study in place, a proposal, um, uh, a councillor, Cameron Kretsch, Ward 2 councillor, has asked the city to look at the possibility of banning right turns on red throughout the city at all lighted intersections. I believe it's all lighted intersections. My next guest will clarify if I got that right. But this, of course, comes in the wake of an accident in which a cyclist was hit by a truck and ended up dying. And so now, presumably or ostensibly in the interest of safety, should every intersection have no right turn on red? Mike Field is the Director of Transportation Operations for the city. Joins me now, Mike, how are you today? Very good. Thanks, Scott. This is... um, we, we do already in the city have a number of lights where you're not allowed to turn right on red, correct? We do. We have uh, 106 locations where uh, we have red light, right on red restrictions. And then uh, because we have one-way streets, we also have uh, uh, 19 no left on red right. restrictions, which are the same thing, essentially. And And of the 106, I assume there was thought behind each one. It wasn't just let's pick a bunch of them and do it. So was it all safety reasons? Was it traffic load reasons? Was there something else? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It, it's uh, so they're not arbitrary. They're based on uh, usually operational function of a traffic signal. Um, and it could be a number of different factors. One of them, which uh, was discussed at Public Works Committee the other day, uh, is related to, um, you know, high volumes of pedestrians crossing the road. The other uh, uh, reason why we implement them are because we have sightline issues where a driver making a, a right-hand turn um, maybe doesn't have great sight lines because a building is built right up to the corner of intersection or that sort of thing. So there's a number of different reasons why they're used. Um, but yeah, to, to your question, they're not just uh, thrown around anywhere. We, we, we do an assessment and, and choose where they're best suited. And while there is, you can certainly make a logical argument why it would work to make it safer, is there... Um... Is there is there evidence that it actually becomes safer? Having have accidents gone down in these intersections, and not just by a couple or a few, because that could be you know a fluke, that could be a wax and wane of normal traffic life. Is there a discernible, noticeable difference in accidents? Right, the traffic industry works. We're really heavily based on uh, on statistics and re- reviewing performance. So uh, we do have a good background of of uh, and I'll define red light, no right hand on red or no right turn on red as one of the tools in our toolbox and it has attributed safety be- benefits that are measurable um, but but it has to be in certain situations so where where there's heavy pedestrian uh, uh, volume and and movement there definitely is a safety uh, benefit to it uh, to implement them um, and, and that's measurable so the the everyone should be familiar with the number of, of uh, restrictions we placed on Main Street, uh, but no right-hand turn on red restrictions were part of a uh, a number of different tools that we implemented. So that all on its own didn't necessarily um, uh, make things safer, but in concert with all the other changes, we definitely did see a reduction in collisions on Main Street since we made those changes by about, I think it's been around a 40% reduction in, in uh, collisions along that corridor. Okay, uh, now let's go to the flip side of this. Is there any discernible downside to this as far as an impact on traffic? Because I, I would think uh, that, for example, if you have a busy pedestrian intersection, as you discuss, and pedestrians continue to cross 
over the course of a light. If you can only turn right on green, but pedestrians continue to cross, you could end up with a serious backlog of traffic because those cars can't turn because the pedestrians are in the way. Yeah, there's there's a number of um, there's another another number of benefits, but also um, uh, um, ramifications of of implementing a measure like that. Um, I think it's easy to understand that if we're only allowing uh, vehicles to turn when they have the green light, that means that um, the pedestrians and all of the the right hand turning vehicles are. Uh, coming into conflict with each other uh, at the same time, as opposed to uh, vehicles being being able to turn on a red light and pedestrians not able to cross. Um, so it has to be looked at very carefully um, on kind of a case by case example of intersection by intersection to make sure that the benefits uh, outweigh the the other uh, considerations and one of them is traffic delay as well because obviously uh, you know cars can't move when it's a when it's a red light uh, in those scenarios and then uh, they have to make those turns when it's a, when it's a green phase so there can be some uh, some delays caused to motorists but like I mentioned we have to weigh all of those factors right, and right. make sure when we're applying those restrictions that they make sense for the location and they're really trying to to solve or or help solve an issue at a, at, at an intersection we're just not arbitrarily placing them um, you know across the board without examining the full effect Right. And one of the places, the reason I asked that question, because many times I've driven James Street towards King, towards Maine, and when you try to turn right at King, right, where Jackson Square is, there are times that becomes really difficult within the time frame you have to turn. And I look and I go, okay, I don't know if that's existing just in that one busy intersection or if that happens all over the place. Now, to that point, though, what you've just said I don't want to say you've prejudged this study, but you've certainly suggested that a blanket right turn on red band might be difficult to do. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's that's accurate. I mean, if you think about a rural intersection, a rural signalized intersection where there's no pedestrians um, and there's no sightline issues, I, I don't see the benefit of installing uh, no right turn on red restriction in that type of scenario. That's very clear to me. And then it not, uh, in other scenarios, it might not make sense either, but there might be other things that we want to implement to uh, address uh, what is meant by that and what is the council is is uh, looking for us to do. And that's to improve the safety of pedestrians. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the very successful things that we used on Main Street was something called leading ped intervals. That's where pedestrians get the walk symbol before any of the, the green lights happen. I mean, all, all the legs of an intersection stay red the pedestrians get to start walking and by the time the uh, the car the light turns green the, the pedestrians have basically crossed half or greater of the of the crosswalk and then the cars aren't in conflict with pedestrians um so so that's kind of an example of of you know the the objective from council is to protect the safety of pedestrians um and they're asking us to examine the not a blanket uh application of it but the expanded use of red light uh, no right turn on red across the city. All right, Mike, we got only a few seconds left here. So let me ask you the one thing that I know that pedestrians and cyclists will hate this question, but I think it's a reasonably fair question. And that is, what about enforcement? Because if we say no right turn on red for drivers, you know that if a driver then does it, he potentially stands or she stands the risk of getting ticketed. But if the red hand is up saying, okay, it's a green light, but it's not good for pedestrians to cross, 
and they keep crossing, as you've just described, it becomes impossible for drivers to turn. Does there need to be enforcement both for drivers and for pedestrians if something like this comes into play? Yeah, that's that's a really important question because uh, at the end of the day, a red, uh, a no right turn on red restriction is a sign uh, on a pole, and it really requires drivers to abide by that sign. Um, and uh, and some people may choose to, and some people may choose not to. Some people may not see the sign. So enforcement uh, or or you know driver behavior plays a pretty big role in it and that and that's the same goes with with uh, permitting right turns on red too because uh, even you know if you're a driver and you're making a right turn on red you still have to yield to uh, the conditions within the crosswalk and that sort of thing so it, it does rely on compliance and um, and what about so, though for the pedestrian and bicyclists as well do they have to be enforced to make sure that this, the cars have a chance to turn and they don't just keep going yeah, I, I mean, that's that's an important factor, too. We don't want pedestrians crossing the road when they don't have the walk symbol and uh, cyclists are a vehicle. So they have to abide by the, the rules of the of the road as well. So we wouldn't want them entering an intersection when they say have a red signal as well. So it, it requires compliance across, uh, you know, all road users um, and uh, and part of part of changing driver behavior, behavior in general is is uh, part of the puzzle is enforcement. For sure. But the other the other thing, sorry, the other thing that I'll mention too is consistency across the city. So, you know, having having some framework and and having uh, expansion of no right turn on red. So it also helps that if it's more predictable that you know certain intersections you're going to find this than a driver, you'll kind of have those indicators that, yeah, you know, we're using this more often in the city. I need to watch out for it. So that's another uh, piece of the puzzle. That is Mike Field. He's the Director of Transportation Services or Transportation Operations for the city. I really appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for the time today. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, I was on Twitter. Um, I try to spend as little time as possible there, but I still get there. And came upon a tweet or an X, I guess, these days. What do you call it anyway? Anyway, we saw whatever it was. And it was from my next guest. It was from Jennifer Bonner, who is the executive director of The Hub. If you don't know what The Hub is, you probably should. Um, if you don't, it's probably, that's probably good for you that you don't. Uh, it is a place downtown near First Ontario Centre, near the Salvation Army, that helps a lot of people who are on the street. It's where people can go to warm up or to get a meal or to get some help, some guidance, some all kinds of different things they do down there for hundreds and hundreds of people. Anyway, the tweet, or the X was a photo under the wording, you got to be kidding me, right? And this is from Jennifer saying, well, it's a, let me bring Jennifer Bonner into this and uh, I'll let her explain because Jennifer, when I saw this, I think I was probably about as stunned <laughs> as you were. Well, maybe not quite as stunned <laughs> as you were on this one, but you guys are doing all this work with no funding from the city. I don't think you, this is all stuff you're doing. W- what did you get from the city yesterday? So I came in yesterday around noon to a yellow poster on my door, uh, which was the bylaw notice that I shared on Twitter. Um, and it was about uh, removing graffiti on my building. So they were de- so bylaw had come by and had demanded that you guys spend your time taking graffiti off the walls of the building. By October 24th, yes. All right. Um, so there's a number of things here that uh, that I immediately thought, and you probably did too. Uh, the first one is, would it be a fair thing to say that, Jennifer, you or none of the people who helped drew the graffiti onto the wall? 
Yeah, pretty much. None of us put that out there. It certainly wasn't a, a requested art installation by any means. Okay. And so uh, assuming then someone else from this, from the, uh, the public did it, who knows who it was, uh, but this puts it on you. I'm, I'm shocked by that. The second thing is I don't know if bylaw goes just walking around handing these things out. Do you know if this had to be as a result of a complaint? Um, I don't know to that answer to that question. Um, I would assume at this point that bylaw, as busy as they are, are going from in a complaint process. Um, but I actually don't know if it was just someone in the neighborhood who decided to do that. All right. Would this cost you money to do it or could you do this yourself if you had time to do it? Um, at this point, we would have to contract it out. The graffiti is also like at our roof line. I guess someone climbed on our building at one point uh, and did something at the roof line. So we would have to contract it out. I do want to say, though, today we had a, a bunch of folks reach out, uh, community partners uh, and as well as uh, service agencies. Uh, Gorilla Graffiti was one of them who said, reach out to us. We're glad to help, that sort of thing. So certainly some resources have come our way, but otherwise it would be uh, basically taking food out of people's mouths. Yeah. Is there anything, I, I don't know what is said. Is this is this words? Is this drawings? Is it something that's totally obscene that has to come down because it would just offend public sensibilities? No, there's actually, uh, there's no uh, gang markers on my building. There is nothing on there. I tweeted out a couple of the pictures about the graffiti they were asking about. Um, they are on Twitter because uh, someone actually asked me that question. One of them was actually a really personal message uh telling uh each other to uh love someone um and it was an rip message to someone in community so there definitely wasn't anything that was like super graphic that needed to come off um and there was nothing related to gang symbols um we would have removed that already yeah one of the other ironies of this is that um there are uh, probably tens of thousands if if we were going to go by the letter of the law and people can just drive around the city and see this. There are probably, well, maybe not tens. There are thousands probably of bylaw infractions around the city on any given day. I, I just find it puzzling <laughs> that you would, you know, whether it's weeds or whether it's other graffiti or whether it's whatever. I mean, there's, if you go through the list, and not you, Jennifer, yourself, but if people go through the list of bylaws in the city, and I wrote about this several months ago, there are some of the most bizarre bylaws on our books that they would never, ever, ever enforce I just, for the life of me, and you're probably in the same boat, can't figure out why they would bother with this. Yeah, I think that was kind of the thing. This wasn't meant to be a woe is me post. We got to spend money to fix this. This was really like, wake up. Are we resourcing our folks properly? Because this should not be a priority right now. Not to mention that I also believe that we need to clean up our own backyards out here before we, you know, start attacking other people. There's city property across the street from me that hasn't been cut all summer. Um, and we have overdoses over there that our team responds to every single day. Um, and it's unsafe for my staff to do so, but we do so because we're saving lives. Um, and at the end of the day, we're complaining about a little bit of graffiti on an old building um, that probably, quite frankly, uh, will have, you know, be gone in the new sort of version of what the downtown core is going to look like. What I just don't understand, and we we talked to Councillor Tammy Wang on the show yesterday, and this is not blaming her. Uh, she's got nothing to do with this, as far as I know. So this is not, it just, it happens to be the juxtaposition of the fact that we talked yesterday about the fact the city is desperately trying to find people to help with mental health, find money for mental health to help people who are on the street. And here you have 
you and others who are there helping people who are on the street and you're getting not a ticket yet, but getting basically a warning or an order. You will get ticketed if you don't do this. It just, it just seems wrong in so many ways. Yeah, I think this was kind of the issue is that, um, the city's relied on us pretty heavily for the last three years, right? Since COVID started, we were a COVID driven agency. Originally, we turned it in for two and not for profit last year. Um, we are not funded by the city currently um, outside of winter warmups when we do them. Um, and so here we are doing a whole bunch of work um, in, in because we want to, because we care about people. Um, but at the same time, you're going to come and find me for graffiti or ask me to remove or spend money to fix graffiti. We are um, helping folks navigate the system here, trying to get folks reconnected to services so that they can get in those by name priority lists, get housing and uh, you know, bylaw officers, as far as I'm concerned, should be focusing on the root cause. And the root cause is where are these, uh, these landlords that are, you know, not taking care of their properties or sub uh, you know, subpar living conditions um, that are charging $1,200 a month for a one bedroom apartment or a, a bachelor apartment at this point. Um, and, you know, frankly, if, if we were enforcing those laws over the last couple of years, then, you know, maybe I wouldn't have to exist as an agency in the first place. And mm. then maybe you wouldn't have to worry about graffiti on my building. Well, and as I, uh, we got to run here, but uh, I mean, you, you mentioned warming center. If, if I'm correct and maybe my memory isn't bang on, but I think you may have been at sometimes the only warming center during the really cold snaps last year or one of the very few anyway, that was open. Last year, we were the only overnight warming center. Uh, we ran 10 PM to 10 AM, which means my staff, some of my staff were working 16, 18-hour shifts. It, uh, it is to scratch one's head. Uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm hoping is that this is just some rogue agent bylaw officer who walked by and did this and uh, that you will get another note by tomorrow or hopefully it would have been by today saying, ah, never mind. We got you. It's not to worry. But well, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Jennifer Bonner, Executive Director of The Hub. Thanks for taking time today. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we talked about yesterday on the show, while it was going on, uh, things did not go particularly swimmingly for the Blue Jays yesterday. And not only did they not go particularly swimmingly, but the way they went off the rails was about as antagonizing to fans and baseball purists as you probably were going to ever get as far as what would make people lose their minds. Uh, my next guest is a guy who for years took calls on post-game shows after Blue Jays games. And I got to believe, I don't know if he misses doing that or not, but I got to believe that yesterday after the game, he was having pangs of the opportunity to be taking those calls because you knew that people were fired up. His name is Mike Wilner. How are you, sir? I'm all right, thanks. You know what? Given uh, the fact that my podcast went daily over the course of the last week of the season and the playoffs, and I was taking emails from people during games, not quite the same as calls, but it was a very, very familiar feeling. So uh, I, I, w- I felt like I was right back in that old seat last night, for sure. Well, and it was an interesting seat, Mike, because uh, I don't know, and I'll, and I'll ask you, uh, I mean, most people took issue with the way the Blue Jays handled that game, uh, whether you're pointing the finger at the manager or the front office. But, 
It seems that the vast majority of people, whether it's Joe Schmoes or whether it is baseball experts, all had issues with how that was done. Did you share that? Oh, yeah, it was terrible. Okay. You know, every once in a while I get surprised, but I, I, I mean, your, your view is similar to what everyone else was then. This was a, this was a, a screw-up. This was a uh, planned in advance, scripted move that they felt was going to give them the best chance to win when they scripted it. But when you script it and then the game happens, you have to allow a little leeway for what's actually happening in front of you in the game. But unfortunately, it appears as though the Blue Jays do not grant that level of leeway and uh, the plan needs to be stuck with. I mean, you could see, I don't know if you saw John Schneider in the post-game media conference, how upset he was um, about having to take out Jose Barrios when he took him out. Um, This was not something he wanted to do. And it was something that had been pre-planned know if if the score is nothing nothing and those lefties are coming up and Barrios puts somebody on base that's it he's out and there was if John Schneider wanted to keep his job there was nothing he could do except go out there and make that pitching change that uh, I mean you never know right Barrios could have melted down he could have given up five runs in that inning but the way he was pitching, you would want you would have wanted him to actually get in trouble before taking him out of the ball. Right. I get that it's an elimination game. I get that you have to be very, very cognizant of the first sign of trouble. But you want there to actually be trouble. The, the, the question that a lot of people have had today, and you're close enough to the team that maybe you have a good answer for this, because most of the other people are just guessing, Let's say John Schneider played the gut thing. They use all the analytics, but he's watching this. The plan is in place, but he says, I can't do that. The guy's just going too well. What happens if he doesn't take Barrios out? I assume he gets fired. I assume that, you know, they would, there would be a very long discussion between him and Ross Atkin, um, and it would... Ultimately, you know, there would be words like trust and collaboration in there. Um, And the fan base is so disenamored with Schneider anyway that it wouldn't take much for the Blue Jays to pull the plug on him. Uh, And, you know, people want blood. That would be part of it. But, I, you know, look, it's, it's... what happens? What happens if your boss tells you to do something and you don't do it? You don't get to do that anymore. That's true. That's true. Uh, you, you know, okay, so yes, the fan base is disenamored with John Schneider. I don't disagree with you one bit. I don't know that they're any more enamored, however, of Ross Atkins. Um, in the light of this, is there any chance that Ross Atkins pays a penalty or is he so protected by Mark Shapiro that he's good for as long as he wants? I would think that Shapiro and Atkins are a matched set. I, I, I'm not a thousand percent sure about that. You know, last year or the year before, I would have said, 
there is no situation in which Ross Atkins is relieved of his duties while Mark Shapiro is still working here. I'm not quite as confident that way, but, you know, take a step back. Ross Atkins built the team with the best pitching and defense in the major leagues this year. Um, that's, that's a pretty good uh, note on your resume as general manager. So I don't, I don't think he's going anywhere. Why are the all right analytics? Uh, I think most people there's going to be some who just hate the idea of analytics. Period. I, that's that's. Well, let's leave that aside. Analytics. Everybody, I think most people would acknowledge analytics certainly have a place in modern sports, not just baseball in modern sports. But there does Let's replace the word yeah. analytics with information. Sure. Like, really, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. But. Somewhere along the way, some teams, and it clearly looks like Toronto is one of them, takes the idea of this information from something to guide you to something that is almost um, religious in how you have to cling to it. Where does that, how does that happen? And is that something that you think is a philosophy that can be changed? Or is that just something that's in the DNA of this organization? I mean, if... If last night didn't change it, I mean, the thing is, though, last night they can still say, well, they didn't score any runs. So, you know, we made that move, and it cost two runs right away, but you should be able to expect your team to score two runs. That that uh, it worked because Minnesota didn't score against the Blue Jays' right-handers that they paraded out of the bullpen after making that move. So they can hang their hats on that and say, hey, it worked when, you know, we all know it, it just took all the air out of that place. And, and, you know, listen to how many members of the Minnesota Twins said last night how happy they were to see Jose Barrios coming out of that game. So it depends on how much they've dug their heels in. Because they can say, well, look, I mean, they didn't score against the righties in the bullpen. That was why we did it. We got the lefties out. It worked. Or they can see, man, that was dumb in retrospect and something that should not have been done. So it, it really depends because they did it in 2020 also. Don't forget that in 2020, they got too cute twice in that best two out of three against Tampa Bay Rays. Right? They didn't start Hyunjin Ryu in Game 1. Ryu, who was a Cy Young finalist, who had been their ace, they didn't start him in Game 1 because they thought, oh, maybe we can sneak Game 1 by piggybacking Matt Shoemaker and Robbie Ray. And if we do that, we've got a great chance to win the series with Ryu in Game 2. And then, when Shoemaker was absolutely dealing, they stuck to their plan to take him out after three innings and follow him with Robbie Ray for three innings. So they got too cute twice in that that playoff series three years ago, and they don't seem to have learned from that. Mm. Let's take the fans out of this one for a second, because the fans are clearly ticked off and want blood, and I don't think they're going to get it, but let's leave that out. You are now in, I mean, you, the general you, you are in the clubhouse. How do you restore, because I got to believe that a lot of those players, some of them spoke, but some of them kept sort of bit their lip. How do you restore faith within your players 
that they are going to be, that the right decisions are going to be made based on their performance after what you just described a few years ago and this, and this time? I mean, you just have to communicate. You have to tell them this is why we did this. This is why we did it, and we thought this would give you the best possible chance to win. And you have to listen what, to what you hear back from the players, from the coaching staff, from the people who are on the ground. The game is a lot easier from the upstairs offices than it is on the field. Ross Atkins has played. He was a minor league pitcher in the Cleveland organization for five years. Mark Shapiro has played elite-level college football at the absolute least. They understand, but there are a lot of people who just don't know what it is to be on the ground. And a lot of those people are the ones coming up with these formulas and these grand plans and these big ideas and selling Atkins on them. Do you believe that this will have or should or could have any impact on free agency? Because you do have to still lure, whether it's this year or in the future, you have to lure players to the team. That's how modern baseball works. If you're a player looking at Toronto, especially a pitcher, does this impact your decision on whether you want to come here? I don't think so. I mean... Look, look what they did in 2020. They signed George Springer the next year and Kevin Gosman and then Chris Bassett. So it certainly didn't impact that. Hasn't impacted free agents that Tampa Bay's been willing to pay um, to get them there. Ultimately, it's the money that gets a player to sign with you in free agency. Um, I, I think that idea is a bit overstated. And uh, I think if you pay a guy enough, he's coming no matter what. I suspect, yeah, I mean, the, the Ted DiBiase, uh, the million-dollar man, used to say everybody, every man's got his price, and I, I believe that to be true. It just you wonder if now that price goes up because it's going to take more to lure someone. I don't know if that would be the case or not. Speaking of money, we are getting, well, we, the Blue Jays, are getting closer and closer to having to pay Vlad Guerrero um, this was not, again, this was not a wildly successful postseason for him, short as it was. It wasn't a, whole, a good year for him. What's going on with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. right now? Because it, it certainly appears he's going backwards, not forwards. Well, he's still got a couple of years, right? They, they don't have to pay him. He doesn't enter free agency until after the 2025 season. So two more full years of Vlad to show what he's capable of doing. But if he keeps this up, he's just a slightly above average first baseman. And that's not going to get you a 10-year, $300 million contract. So, you know, the idea that the Blue Jays are going to have to spend this money on Vladdy, even if he doesn't perform, um, it's just not true. They, they just won't, and he won't get it from anywhere else. But we all know that it's in there, and we know that he's capable of it. We've seen it happen. Right. Um, but it is, you know, it, it's important to remember that the improvement curve of a player is not linear. You don't go from point A to point B to point C, and each point is higher and better than the next. There are dips along the way. There are bumps in the road. 
these guys are human. If they weren't, then the same guy would win the MVP every single year, and the same guy would win the Cy Young Award every single year. Um, but it doesn't happen that way. Players have good years. Players have bad years. Players have peaks and valleys in performance. And even in this year, where Vlad will tell you he didn't have the year he wanted, he still led the Blue Jays in home runs. I believe he led the team in RBIs by 30. And he was uh, he had a 113 OPS, which made him 13% better than every other major league hitter. Not what we expected from him, for sure. But if that's his valley, I would take that in a heartbeat. 98% of the players who played in Major League Baseball history would take that at their best year. So, yeah, we've got high expectations for Vlad, and we should because we've seen what he's capable of doing. But let's not forget that his down years are most people's best years. Yeah, there does seem to be, and you're absolutely right. I mean, clearly you're right about that. The the challenge, I guess, or the thing that has a lot of people scratching their heads or frustrated watching him and cheering for him is that it it seems as though he had his best year and then the last two have each been a little bit less impressive. I know what you're saying about it's not linear, but you do kind of not expect that it's going to go that direction. No, you don't. You're right. You, you absolutely don't expect that it's going to go in that direction. And, you know, he was banged up for a while, too, this year. People see that he's not running out ground balls, and they just think he's lazy, and they don't understand he's got a bad knee that forced him out of the lineup a couple of times. He plays every day, which is something that just doesn't happen in the major leagues anymore. He had a, a wrist thing in May that slowed him down a little bit. But you don't expect the regression you don't expect each year to be worse than the year before, even if you're not quite sure you're going to be able to get each year being better than the year before. But so, another important thing to remember is he's still like four years away from his prime. He's only 24. Yeah, and the and the truly terrifying thing would be that if you're the Blue Jays and you decide for whatever reason that, you know, the money he seeks is not what you want to pay, you, you know darn well he's going to go to... Boston or the Yankees or the Dodgers who will pay him and he'll all of a sudden become the guy that everyone thinks he's going to become and you'll be looking like the idiots who let him go. Guarantees never going to the Yankees. Fair that's 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 true. He has said that. I forgot that. Yes. He has okay, the other places, pick your other spot, but you, you just know that it would come back to bite you if you let him walk away. Yeah, but at the same time you can't let that hold you hostage. You know, you're aware of of the player and just how good he is and just how good he's capable of being. But that doesn't mean you've got to um, give him whatever he wants if he hasn't performed to that level. No, those uh, those deals are only for the Mike Wilners of the world. Give him whatever he wants because of the level at which he's performing, right? That, that Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell your bosses what? that one anyway. Hasn't happened yet, but one can only hope. <laughs> that is Mike Wilner, I believe, on his way home from Minnesota right now in the car. Mike, really appreciate you taking a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us 
Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.